as the uh, events in and around our nation's capital unfolded last week and as the continued fallout from such, I, I kept uh, coming back to this passage in, our, in my mind in James chapter 2. And I hope the reason for such will be evident as we talk about uh, this passage. The events last week should disturb all of us, whatever our faith commitments or lack thereof. But as Christians, when we see the, the name of Jesus, the sort of images and iconography of Christianity used to justify acts of violence, it's especially disturbing, even if not particularly rare in the history of Christianity. Is Christianity really this open to interpretation? Is it is it possible to incorporate zip ties into the faith? To plot the murder of our political enemies if we simply believe hard enough that it is? Or to ask it in a, a less loaded or maybe a more familiar way, how is it possible to see so many people in the church that are steeped in the Bible, sophisticated theologians, and yet unkind to their neighbor. James here is talking about people who make claims of faith, but who lack its substance. Now, these people are actually quite easy to spot. James tells us that they lack compassion and care towards needy people. That that's how we spot someone who claims faith but lacks its substance. They lack compassion and care toward needy people. I wish it was something that we could offload more fully. I wish it was something that we could simply project upon those who storm the Capitol and not reflect upon that reality in our own heart. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? If a brother or sister doesn't have clothes or daily food and we say to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? James is stating in a New Testament context what is stated over and over in the Old as well as in the Gospels that care for the poor is a more trustworthy sign of knowing and being in relationship to God than is what we say we believe. Now, we are naturally drawn to people that are similar to us, people who occupy similar stations in life because they make us comfortable about our own life choices. People who have a similar story to ours allows us to live comfortably within the confines of the story that we're living. But if you're a Christian, then you have a similar origin story to people that you might not think of. Not that the people necessarily in our, our neighborhood or our clubs or our close friend groups, people that generally tend to be very similar to us. But if we're Christians, we have a similar origin story to the poor even if we are people of considerable means. Christian 
repentance, you see, is expressed in terms of poverty. And if you believe the basics of the gospel, you you will see yourself in and be drawn to action on behalf of poor people, by which we mean not just those who are financially poor, but persons of deficit of all kinds, social, financial, emotional, spiritual. And if our response to people of deficit is go in peace, keep warm, and be well-fed, James is saying that our confession of faith is just empty words. In other words, orthodoxy, right thinking, right believing, without kindness, without compassion, without seeking the good of our neighbor, should be more obviously fraudulent to us than it is. In fact, James goes one step further, that orthodoxy without compassion is actually demonic. Verse 17, he says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God? Well, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Now, you may know, hopefully you do, that in town is a church in the Reformed tradition, broadly speaking, and there are some wonderful things about this tradition. There's a reason that we belong to it. There's a reason that as I was going through my vocational training and preparation that I gravitated to the Reform tradition. Some of the most sophisticated and beautiful confessions have come from this tradition over the last 500 years. So when James says, you have good theology, well, good for you. We should listen to uh, listen up because he is picking on us. He's picking on our strength. See, even the demons have really good doctrine. And they don't just know it, but they believe that it's true. They know the power, the transcendence, the magnificence of God. And they shudder. They tremble. They shiver before God. In contrast, those with good doctrine with orthodoxy, with beautiful, nuanced theology, these should be the people who are most tender to the needs of others. These should be people who are the most loving, the most concerned about the needs around them, the most in love with God. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? We all know theological savants. We all know people who can quote the Bible, but don't have acts of kindness, don't have deeds of goodness toward their neighbor. Theology, like anything else, can lead to false religion, and it can be an instrument of pride and of self-justification. Herman Bavink, who was a, a Dutch theologian, Uh, He was a theologian by trade, a professor, and he was speaking to a conference of other pastors and professors in the early 20th century, and his title was The Future of Calvinism. And he was speaking into a a reformed context that was very suspicious of the Roman Catholic Church. 
And he says, Roman Catholic righteousness by good works is vastly preferable to a Protestant righteousness by good doctrine. At least righteousness by good works benefits one's neighbor, whereas righteousness by good doctrine only produces lovelessness and pride. Now, being in some of these uh, conferences with people like what I imagine the people that at that conference were like, I can just hear the entire audience shudder or maybe start writing down notes of complaint, notes that they're going to send to him after the conference. But Bavink was making a very purposeful caricature of Roman Catholicism. And he is doing so to say to his Protestant, Reformed, very cerebral audience that you can't get to God by right thinking any more than you can with right living. But at least the latter is good for the world and good for our neighbor. Now, demons are committed to right thinking. Demons are orthodox, and yet they're terrified. They're tormented. They are afraid of God. James reaches way back into Jewish history and into the biblical record to further elaborate on this. And he says that Abraham was a man who feared God, but it led him not to shuddering and shivering and to torment, but to obedience and friendship. Do you want evidence, verse 20, that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? His faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. I love that part. You see, people are considered righteous or justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Demons were tormented by the truth. Abraham was comforted. Abraham also knew God's transcendence and power, but he also knew, unlike the demons, his nearness and his love. Not only his transcendent holiness, but his friendship. Now we need to talk just a bit more about verse 24. Martin Luther, the the great Protestant reformer that sort of kicked off the the formal part of the Protestant Reformation by posting the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, he actually called the uh, epistle of James the epistle of straw because he saw it as contradicting the gospel of free grace that he had read so much about and was so compelled by in the Apostle Paul. And if you read verse 24 in the translations that were in circulation during Luther's time, he worked off Erasmus's version of the Greek New Testament. Uh, you would see why he was befuddled, why he would use such words, because what he would have read is that you see a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Our translation kind of tempers that 
a little bit because in with the word justified, it translates it as, as considered righteous. But if it's justified or even righteous, a person is righteous or justified by what they do and not by faith alone, that does seem like a direct contradiction to the principles of the Reformation, which Luther helped to, to launch. The Greek word in question is dikaiosune, and it's a word uh, that we would call a homonym in English. It can mean a couple of different things. It can mean made righteous, or it can mean sh- to be shown righteous. People are shown to be righteous, that is, in right standing, and right relationship with God by their faithful actions, not by a mere claim to faith. Now, it's interesting that James would have a problem with this because Paul actually says something very similar in Romans chapter 2. He says, for it is not, in verse 13, those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared or shown to be righteous. What Paul, what James, what Martin Luther, what the great Reformation tradition has always said is that a mere profession of faith is not enough. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds Can such a faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? He's not doubting here that faith in God can save anyone, but that such a faith can save. That is a faith without works. Because a workless faith is not a true faith. You see, Abraham was justified, declared righteous, shown to be righteous, not by simply the collection of ideas that he had in his head, but like the disciples to whom Jesus said, follow me, and they dropped their nets and did so. Abraham turned his life and his hope and his future over to a relationship of trust with God. Now to illustrate this, A little bit further, James gives us an example of a complete outsider, someone very much unlike Abraham, receiving the commendation of God, not on the basis of her doctrine, but on something, on the basis of something that she did. We see verse 25, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now Rahab did something incredibly dangerous and incredibly courageous, something that is completely unexplainable apart from a transformative encounter with God. She gave lodging to her people's enemies. Rahab's hiding of these spies meant that she had changed everything. She had recast her whole life in light 
of the story of Israel, of the story of God's intervention into the life and story of his beloved people. She was a prostitute and a Canaanite, but now she's a follower of Yahweh, willing to put her life on the line for her friends in the faith. You see, it's not just an ascent to truth, but it's an adaptation of her whole life, which demonstrates her to be, as an outsider, as righteous as the most faithful Jewish insider. Rahab and Abraham both have equal claim to the faith because they have a faith that works. Now there's one more twist and then we'll conclude. Because James uses this famous story in Genesis 22 of Abraham's unrealized sacrifice of his son Isaac and his being considered righteous because of that. But if you noticed, our Old Testament reading that we looked at uh, was in chapter 15. In other words, he was considered righteous. He was justified before this event. Genesis 22 was an action based upon the reality of Genesis 15, where we see Abraham made righteous, not by his own claim to faith, but by God's declaration. God, you see, decrees Abraham to be righteous based upon his free grace that precedes Abraham's offer of Isaac. That willingness to sacrifice everything that is important to him demonstrates that his whole life has been devoted to God. It does, in fact, as our translations of James say, show him to be righteous. In other words, Genesis 22 reveals his faith. It reveals the declaration that God has made about Abraham back in Genesis 15, that grace comes from God. It is not self-generated, but if it is generated at all, it will always be followed by works of compassion and works of generosity and works of kindness, especially to the poor. Now, this story of the eventually avoided sacrifice of Isaac. It isn't there just to show Abraham's devotion, to encourage us to be just as devoted as Abraham was. God doesn't want him to slay his innocent son as some elaborate test of loyalty, but instead as an elaborate illustration, a depiction of God's decision to sacrifice his son in loyalty to us. There will be no ram in the thicket to forestall the crucifixion of Jesus because he is the ram embodied in human form. He is the lamb of slaughter. He is the the fulcrum from which God can declare you and I righteous. 
And it's that action that should propel us into the lives and needs of others with kindness and compassion and goodness to neighbor because we see how kind and compassionate and good God has been to us in the person of his son. God's son, you see, was the substitute. He was the ram with the horns caught in the thicket. And at the end of the day, friends, our hope, our future is based upon the fact that God is the one who does not merely profess his love, but he acts in it on our behalf. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would be a church that moves into the world not out of obligation, not so that we can simply pat ourselves on the back or highlight our accomplishments on our website, But Father, because we are compelled by love, we are compelled by the fact that you reached out to us in the very depth of our poverty and you granted us the richness of the gospel, the riches of hope that is based upon the work and the life, the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we exalt you, we worship you in his name and we pray that we would be people like him that we would not take up arms against our enemies, perceived or real, but that we would take up acts of compassion toward them wherever they live, whether they are next door to us, whether they reside even in our family, or maybe even if they reside across the country or across the world, that we would think at least about them with grace and with compassion. And I pray that we as a church would be a vehicle of your love for many. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen.